Postman Show on AlbionRadio.com. The following is an interview with Bigfoot Times newsletter creator Daniel Perez. He founded the Center of Bigfoot Studies and started a popular Bigfoot Times newspaper, which he both edits and publishes. This newspaper is well known among Bigfoot investigators for its hard hitting, sometimes controversial critiques of the most prominent Bigfoot researchers and their work. Perez is considered by many to be the authority regarding the circumstances surrounding the 1967 Patterson Gremlin film. Daniel Perez has acquainted um, debunking Bigfoot blog post. And here is the interview. Perez. Sharon Hill was the first to respond to my review of the Edibonable Science I think she made a comment afterwards. I did not read I did not read the book. Just panned it. At the time I had read and digested just the Bigfoot and Anonymous Snowman sections and skimmed the rest. Since that time I have read every page. Now I have two copies of the work. It's garbage published by an academic press, plain and simple. If it if that is what left out of the book that compiles Anyone who knows nothing about the subject matter find the arguments presented in the book quite compelling. I haven't had in many run-ins with sceptics and debunkers. I can't really tell you the difference between the two. I do recall meeting Michael Schimmer in 1994-95, whereabouts at the NBC studio, or one of those studios. Jay Leno was actually physically there. We got to meet him. It was my first and only brush with streamer. The way I would call it, he did say, did say something like that grainy 8mm movie in reference to the VG film. I didn't correct him. I called grainy or 8mm. I just thought to myself, here is one more sceptic or dumbaker who is voicing an opinion, who knows very little about the subject. He didn't hear me talking about the atmospheric Well, you know why. Because I don't know anything about it. I have no use for Hill. I think she is a deeply troubled lady. She writes well, but it comes to having a deep understanding of the nuts and bolts of a big topic. She's just another lost soul. You read Adonable Science and read about Roe and Patterson. Similarities between two cases. Doesn't know anything about the matter, of course. You have swallowed what the authors wrote. It's just a pile of garbage. They're using a PhD, very nice artwork. A community press inclusion process to drive their theories is home. If you get away from that, that address the issues, you will see the horrendous piece of work done on science. It really is. Guy who reviewed the lot this month's abortion of the book really opened my eyes for how bad that section is. In October 2013, issue of Bigfoot Times, you expose a deceptive tactic employed by Joe Noel of Skeptical Inquirer where he tries to milk the Bigfoot or just misidentified bears argument. I know, I know I'm getting suspected that a lot of this hard-wired individuals there's nothing they can do about it. For instance, some people are going to be tall, some short, and that's it. Or some people never like the taste of tomatoes, but others will taste them, love the taste. There might also be something deep inside our primal brains, a competitive, a competition for, about, from another rival. 
upset walking, upright walking primate and other, well, our way of handling the matter should be to tell others that such things can exist. Being a sceptic of the bunker doesn't stop them next revolt or someone claiming to have seen a Bigfoot tomorrow or the next day or even next year. I seldom hear of a debunker or sceptic going out of the way to interview a Bigfoot witness, eyewitnesses. For instance, why don't then authors of the normal science interview Bob Grimlin? Just a plain stupid half. Those failed to do this. Instead, they went about, went after dead man, Roger Patterson, who couldn't reboot anything. Got rid about him. A real shame and a sham, in my view. You're, um, you're truly sceptical about the Bigfoot at well, Buff Creek. John Landis can say what he wants about my question. I only question him is so talented, why can't Lennis and Company duplicate the film? Plays to plays to apples. They throw the Ty John's chambers argument as it settled long ago, even before the late Bob Short went to visit him. Robert and Fanzance Genetti talked about their book, The Mysterious Monsters, page one one seven. They wrote about him. He concluded if the creature is a man in suit, there's no only gorilla suit. Yet when the later he never claimed he designed any suit for the Batson and Gremlin. It's just a rumour someone attached to him is stuck, but it has no merit. As a note, Robert and Francis have been dead for a long time. But while we are on the subject, if the PG film is a fake and sceptics debunkers exist, why be a dead and a horse? Why don't they argue that the merits of another film, shot just a few years later, round 1965, by the late Ryan Marks? There's no need to argue, because one look, I think, is written all over it. Why start with a PG film? Why not start with the Iron Man Max film from 1970 as to do? They several films of Bigfoot, yet no one, to my knowledge, is debate, debate, debating back and forth on merits of any Max film. Often into tentacle septic comments about the beast, I thought that the very issue of 1995 is Sycamore of My Devil's Avocat speech on the matter. Yes, it's indeed interesting. You, When you were talking about a hair-covered primary and two legs and two arms, I, I would suppose that there's so many ways to get drawn into it. So, in a way... It would have to resemble the subject of a digit film. If you look at all the bicycles in the world, and all the different makers, at the end of the day they share the similarity. There are two wheels and generally spokes in between the rims. On the Patterson sketch, the beast was very, very droopy. I liked the subject in the film, which appeared to be very, very firm. So that is a specific difference. But if Junior is sceptic, then much wrote about it. It's likely he would write something like the beast. Breasts are exactly the same. That proves the film was faked. YouTube has there is a short joke with yourself and Bobo for finding book for the Description says you're using a covert camera like the one Walter Patterson used to find film Bigfoot. Bigfoot standing actor is James Bobo Fay. Would you please talk about the results? Mostly I wanted to see what a person of own, his own height, I think Bobo is 6 foot 2 inches tall, 
I would have to check my notes. It looked like exactly 50 feet from camera, with a 25-50 mil, mil lens on them. I think you see the tape measure on the forest floor. The film still remains unprocessed. But at the same time, I still took still images, too. A piece of two times four, exactly 24 inches long, right next to him. In fact, the two times 24 was actually touching his foot. So it was the same film plane as Bobo. So the question you can use about the two point times four, which is a piece of wood, at the end of the day, with a known length, regardless of knowing anything about the speed, camera speed, film type, film lens, etc., is determine the height of the subject, Bobo. The answer is yes. So that brings us to the piece of wood that Rennie but Din's hand collected from BG film site. That piece of wood was the same film plane that Patty later analyzed showed that using a piece of wood as a scale as subject Patty in his immediate vicinity about seven foot three inches tall. So doing that, what I did with Bobo answered a question to me that can be transposed to PG film. Patty and a piece of wood that Rainey collected. My experiment proved that such a methodology, simple as it was, was valid for the measurement for an unknown subject. Now let's move forward. Bizarre Encounters from the Woodlands of Elliot, Maine. In the summer of 1982, a 14-year-old witness, only known as Chris F., was preparing to move their family home in Elliot, Maine, across the county to Alaska. Possessions were boxed up and in transit across the United States. Family now had just bare essentials for the last few days before they were set off, their home thousands of miles away. Particularly evening, Chris was lying in his sleeping bag, listening to his radio. With no curtains and window, he could see events happening clearly, immediate vicinity outside. As he was lazily staring out the unprotected window, a black, dramatic object came to view. He would describe it as zigzagging rapidly in the air above the tree line of the woods and crept up to the back of their helm. He would estimate his distance of one and a half times the size of the football field. Furthermore, the way this strange craft's mood would make him think of an air hucky puck and see the instantaneous changes in direction. The craft was most definitely zigzagging, it's still very much moving towards their empty property. All the while it maintained its height around ten feet above the top of the trees. Closer the stranger it got, the more it resembled the general shape of a coffin. He would move Chris would move closer to the window. However, the time he moved his focus to get a better look, the other it was gone. He remained where he was for several minutes moments, hoping it would turn. Just as he went to move away though, there was a forty foot forty feet away, hovering over the backyard. Not quite believing his eyes, or he could miss the object's presence only a second ago, Chris remained still, staring outside his strange his strange surreal sight. He recalled the craft was made of metal, a metal that was dull, like gum metal black. He could see no doors or windows, in fact he couldn't even see any seam or join anywhere around the exterior. However, he did notice several protrusions which suggested to him that the object was some kind of machinery. The object now has has to close. You see from proxy the size of a car. It's rectangular shape, almost like a pyramid, tripped over its side, the pointed end removed. He wasn't sure the object had changed shape now 
was still or moved previously had given the impression of a rectangle. The object was on the outside of the window for a matter of four to five seconds. It then left an instant of fact. So fast the object's departure. Christian struggled to locate the direction it moved him. Following the counter and move the go ahead as planned, Chris would find never find out just what the object was. It wasn't until after five thirty five years later he'd log his report on the incident. Furthermore, though the crash London incident featured the description of similar terminated craft, one travelled upright as proposed to tipped over. Chris can't remember what the radio stations he had on during the incident, other than it was a typical mainstream pop radio station. Quite possibly, there could be records of the broadcast, at least of calls received. However, if these exist, their whereabouts and who has them is unknown. The Telepathic Invitations to William Cole In 1977, one July evening, shortly after midnight, William Cole was in his bedroom. He, he was wide awake with his girlfriend and was fast asleep beside him. He contemplated waking her up to tell her the strange lights he could see moving behind the trees at the time at the, at the back of their house. He watched the lights a little bit longer, seeing them rise above the treetops and form a very different craft. The message appeared in his thoughts of proof of extraterrestrials. However, the voice would continue. He wouldn't, wasn't to tell anyone. He could uh, wake his girlfriend. They could have some. They could come aboard the ship. He woke his girlfriend, trying, telling her quickly to go to the window. She did. She too saw the large saucer-shaped craft hovering over the trees. He asked if she could hear anything in her head. He concentrated for a second before stating, "It's endless not to tell anyone, but we can come onto the ship." The pair dressed and quickly began to make their way downstairs, out of the house. Everyone, William briefly turned around. His girlfriend was heading back, insisting she had to wake up or get what we meet. Telling her not or do so, he rushed outside, intensely eager to look at the apparent out-of-worldly craft up close. As he rushed forward, he could see yellowish light coming from the inside the now landed cosmic vehicle. The walls inside were both lit towels and counter the large room, with a tube filled with liquid. Then everything changed. Suddenly, inside, instead of rushing into his vehicle from another part of the galaxy, he was once again at the door of his house. As he ran forward once more, the craft was now lifting up in the air. As he continued to watch the object make its way upward, his girlfriend and roommate joined him in the garden. Then something even bizarre, more bizarre, happened. As the object continued to rise, right before the eyes, it changed its form. Within seconds, gone was a saucer-shaped craft. In that place was the standard United States Congo plane, now cut from the skies. Even Sandy's engine was authentic. It continued to watch the plane until it disappeared the sight of the trees. As he stood there processing, attempting to process what had happened, William could feel waves of mental energy attempting to block the fuse's mind. Perhaps adding to this was the sound of his girlfriend roommate, who would assist craft was in fact just a lame. The following morning, William's girlfriend, also said experience was probably in her mind somehow. William, however, was privately insistent. This was not a figment of imagination, or some collective hallucination. He knew it was real. He would state this in his report 
what happened outside inside the craft. I don't I can't recall. I remember running up that ramp. Eighteen over eight sighting of Cynthia Everett. About ten o'clock I saw a very strange appearance. It was light which proceeded from the east. First sight I thought it was a meteor. But his motion I could perceive it was not. It seemed to dart at first as quickly as light. It appeared to be in a fear, but lowered towards the ground and kept at an equal distance, sometimes ascending and sometimes ascending and sometimes descending. It moved around an invisible horizon. It is not very light, and returned back again, nor did we view it until it was extinguished. While she writes nothing of more of the event, given her higher than average the time of education, including a reasonable knowledge of skies and stars. If ever it could have said what it was, or even was likely to be, she would have. Instead, she misses. It might be a meteor, indeed, the easier object unidentified. The Grand Hills Alien Adduction Case. It would appear that the incident took place in the early hours of New Year's Bay, 2008. The only anonymous witness couldn't bring a experiencing fast rates to the counter until later, a month, a month later. He did, though, awaken in his home in Granada Hills, California. The most bizarre and strange feeling running from him, as well as befitting physical pain and symptoms of severe dilation, all of which immediately alerted him that something was seriously wrong. Despite this persistent nagging, though, his mind maintained a lot of the previous evening's events. Then out of nowhere, the encounter began to bring him back to him. He recalled waking earlier in the evening. Heather was not in the bedroom, but in a glass, strange glass cylinder. What's more, strange clear little greenish liquid surrounded him. He would describe this substance as thicker than water, but not thicker than oil. It only when he noticed that he didn't have any breathing apparatus that he realised he'd breathe perfectly normally, unlike his, despite his complete submergence. He looked around, marvelling at something he could see. He clearly could breathe through the strange substance. He finally began to recall the strange figures entering the bedroom only hours earlier. A surge of panic and outright fear raced for him. He immediately began to look for a way out a glass encounter. When he attempted to move his legs and arms, they appeared completely paralysed. In fact, the only part of his outer body was able to move was his eyes. An interesting detail which suggests the technology appears to be paralysed the limbs and muscles yet leave intact the mechanism for breathing as well as control their sight and blinking. Several of these encounter cases have been before the bizarre laser beam paralysis encounters. The colour of the bizarre liquid fluid and the witness found themselves in the laser's more, more than, than not a distinctly green colour. He would have a keep attentive gain control of his movements. And much his pride is suddenly free for whatever powers and control had on him. He simply pushed out of the glass counter, spinning a green, strange green like gel like substance from his body as he did so. When he was free from the fluid, Despite being able to breathe inside it, he felt suddenly an overwhelming urge to take a big breath of actual air. He looked around his environment, noticing how steamy the atmosphere was, and how an unpleasant smell 
air spilled. You also realised for the first time he was completely naked. He studied the room further, noticing how the walls and ceiling had a cave-in quality to them. Most disturbing of all, though, were the rows of glass containers against one wall, almost identical to one which had he freed himself from. This between he began yelling and screaming like a madman. He began running in direction what appeared to be a light window. As he ran for the room, he recalled how he best described a huge, dark, steamy greenhouse cave. It was a very organic feel to it. The detail of the strange combination of machine and chronic as surface in many revolts of alien abduction, avoiding an alien craft. He ran, he was seeing more, more glass cylinders lining the wall. Some of them even appeared to be clubbing, perhaps suggesting they were not empty, like the majority of them, but contained other people similar to itself. He normally went best as he could and continued to, to go to forward to the window. However, before he could reach it, two humanoid figures approached him out of nowhere. One of them touched him on the shoulder, and everything went black. But this is where his memory of the counter would end. Although he could not have would have the same flashbacks often over coming weeks. Then, without warning, his mind would reveal more of the strange events. He would wake up to find himself lying on the back of some kind of table. Peter gained consciousness halfway through the procedures the homeland creatures were carrying out on him. They were free of them in total. He would almost keep slipping and out of consciousness and be full procedures on his nose and eyes. He would turn their attention to his torso and gentle air in his reaction with one of pain almost utmost fear. He was once again paralysed in all but his eyes so he could see, not see what was taking place. He eventually moved to another area. He would notice how the creatures were five foot eight inches tall, with one of them and noticed taller than the others. Most more tall one most definitely appeared to be in charge. The two smaller humanoids, despite their outer appearance, moved in a robot-like manner. It, the, strain, the taller creature would speak to him in his native Spanish, only not verbally, but directly into his mind. He would assure him the procedure was almost complete, and he would not come in any harm. Almost two months before, before another disturbing of information, but his mind regarding strange events of January 2008, he would recall the moments after waking up in his room, before he finds himself in a strange glass cylinder. He'd wake up to find a strange greyish fluish, British fluorescent glow, permeating in the room. A greenish fog hung in the air. Ever the foot of his bed, cutting through his bizarre green mist, were four small beings, colour in colour, with big almond-shaped eyes. He further noticed an unpleasant, pungent smell hanging in the air. Odo believed it came from these strangers. He realised that he sat on bed, he couldn't move. Then he realised he was screaming out loud. They were cool. Completely. They are real, repeated all the top of his voice. He later recalled that the fear he felt during this time was more than anything he felt during the entire episode. He recalled he would bring very tense and sharp terror back to his mind. He sat unable to move in his bed, began to feel a strange sensation like an electronic cannon running through him. At the same time, his mind opened to feel confused and heavy. The next thing he knew, he was literally floating through the ceiling, the room out through he was literally floating, and out through the roof of the house. He suddenly floated through the air above his home, recalled seeing beautiful coloured lights, and his memory went black. Next thing he knew, he awakened a liquid-filled glass cylinder. 
Let's move on to bizarre cures, because I like these kind of things. And these are some bizarre Roman actual medical treatments. Acme was a scourge of nearly every Roman teenager, so the Romans tried to come up with a cure. Coconut was effective. Getting rid of spots, even freckles, were combined with cypress oil. If the pupils persisted, Romans suggested taking a bath bath of oil and sour cheese to move the pimples. Leek leaves could get rid of pimples and rubbed on the skin. Lastly, the juice of mayor, a mix of cataracts and honey, was said to be effective, relieving the Romans referred to as furious. If that one, if all that failed one face of acne, the court physician of Felius, a Roman emperor in the 4th century, told the prince to wipe their faces with a cloth while watching a falling star. Waltz. Waltz, a wide range of cures. Other, other, often Romans would burn curl dung, moose dung, or the fat of a swan to get rid of themselves of waltz. Pliny suggested taking a freshly potted pea and touching it to each noodle. noodle. Then he stretched his readers to wrap the paste securely to cloth and throw them backward, rubbing the wart through sea foam or white sand was supposed to work if the person afforded, could afford it gold considered the effective remedy for warts. However, if Romans couldn't for any, get any of these cures, he would wait until after the 20th day of the month, lie face up on a bath, look at the moon, grab whatever is nearby, and rub it on the wart. Headaches. For example, wine, which calumnian had been soaked, would be sprinkled on the sufferer's face. If that failed, an elephant trunk would be touched to the head, considered more affected if the elephant was sneezed. A Roman would also drink the water left behind by an ox or ass, which had been drinking it. Linen made from burned cloth would be stained with mineral blood, a mix of oil or roses, and said to be effective cure. As a last result, the severed genitals of the fox fastened around the head to cure a stubborn headache. Constipation. When the Roman Roman ancients had trouble going for the bathroom, there were a number of cures. For instance, eating raw grapes preserved in honey would help. Placing wolf's girl bowl on the navel with different kinds of milk. Different kinds of milk. Salt, honey, or something effective loosening the bowels. For those who didn't like the idea of wolf's grain resting on the head of a bull's girl would be smashed up with wormwood applied as a suppository. Fresh beets of the ground and juice were also beneficial consultation. Sufferers, oddly enough, his remedy was also supposed to work for those affected by diarrhoea. Almost every kind of fruit was said to be good as well. Finally, the man, like Cato the Elder, prescribed cabbage as a great treatment for conversation and multiple other ailments. Nausea. For those suffering from nausea, one of them cures, a three-fingered pinch of cardamom was said to work wonders. Pennyroyal, a common herb in Europe, was also said to help. It was cooked in vinegar. Roman's juice was effective, although the Romans might fall in a deep sleep because of it, without cure of insomnia. Oddly enough, the ancient Romans believed that drinking lots of wine was a cure of nausea. They had a cure for next day's nasty hangover too. However, a Roman woman who was pregnant of a was supposed to eat a pomegranate or drink its juice. 
At last result, human breast milk will be used to call geonosia. It was supposed to be effect, effective. The woman already weaned a child, and doubly so if she had given birth to a boy. Fatulence was a common side effect of many Roman cures. We treated them already in mains. Chicken broth is said to be an excellent procative for the bowels. It was made from the old rooster, strongly salted. It is even more effective. Hence, white droppings, also retrovectral, are suffering from uncomfortable fractions. When mixed with cobbler's lacking basil, supposedly ease fractious fractions. However, the cure is used too frequently, resulting in madness or put the patient into a coma. Pithy was also said of chewing cunnum, missing cunnum and asparagus was helpful, though this cure was often caused another specific problems. As a last result, ground beaver meat with vinegar and rose oil would use as li- or a liquid form. If eaten, it, it was for epilepsy. Distant, dysentery. Chicken soup was considered a cure. Benjamin, a native of salt of Asia Minor, was supposed to work. Benjamin was also hasten ministration for women. The flesh of a spotted lizard was also an effective cure. But the important from a foreign country, a bold before it was eaten. The actual type of lizard was not recorded. Egg yolks without whites could be mixed with poppy juice, wine, and the flowers of pomegranates, a wonder drug in ancient Rome, could be picked and eaten to cure dysentery. It is also vomited blood was supposed to work if it is mixed with wine and vultures' lungs. Yum yum, that's some ancient Roman cures. Oh, I've talked about Bigfoot, um, conspiracy theories, UFO abductions and aliens. And Roman Cures for this episode of The Ghostman Show on Albion Radio